Stanford University. Well, thank you, David, and, and on behalf of the audience, I'm sure, let me also thank you for the, uh, the many efforts that you've made in organizing these programs and in bringing such entertaining speakers to us quarter after quarter. Uh, when the, uh, the speaker at an event like this um, has as distinguished and also as varied a career as uh, our speaker this afternoon, it seems to me his introduction has to be either very short or very long. And uh, since I'm, you're, you will certainly be all far m much better off listening to the speaker than to me, I'll, I'll aim for short. Um, Al Makovsky is at this point Canon Professor of Electrical Engineering and of uh, Radiology Emeritus here at Stanford. And the combination of these two quite different departments um, already gives us a hint of uh, the varied range of his, uh, his accomplishments uh, in exploring different aspects of, in, of imaging. Al began working on color television at RCA laboratories in the 1950s and soon won major awards for his contributions. In the, in the 1960s, he then shifted from the commercial world to uh, Stanford and SRI and worked on medical applications of imaging, including fundamental advances in ultrasonic imaging using arrays, in X-ray imaging using uh, some sophisticated techniques of what's called computerized tomography, and in dual in, in energy imaging for separating uh, bone and uh, soft tissue, and then in finally in uh, MRI, that's magnetic resonance imaging, another very complex technology for blood vessel imaging and, uh, and uh, high-speed imaging. And his efforts in these areas have brought him something like 160 U.S. patents with many foreign counterparts during his career. Um, his accomplishments in these uh, cross-disciplinary areas made him the first uh, joint faculty appointment between the schools of engineering and the medical school at Stanford. And those of you who may have attended uh, the annual meeting of the Stanford Historical Society last week uh, would have heard uh, the current dean of the medical school, Philip Pizzo, refer to the importance of cross-disciplinary efforts like these, and specifically to the, to the contributions of Al Makovsky himself in fostering the rise to prominence of the Stanford Medical School after it moved on to campus back in 1959. Finally, rather than uh, running through a list of Al's professional awards, I thought I might instead note that there are perhaps 200 or so people in the world who are members of both the National Academy of Science and the National Academy of Engineering, um, including a few here at Stanford and maybe even a few in the audience. But there is a third and equally distinguished branch of the National Academies, uh, namely the Institute of Medicine. And so I'll just uh, point out that, that Al is among the, I'd suspect, uh, much smaller group who have been elected both to the National Academy of Engineering and to the Institute of Medicine. So please join me in, in welcoming Al as he tells us about some of his experiences and accomplishments during this very distinguished career. Al? Thank you. 
Thank you, Tony. Uh, I have to say that uh, Professor Kachaturian is a very difficult act to follow. <laughs> uh, I was quite amazed in his talk. He was able to tell his marvelous narrative completely without visual aids. <laughs> and not having his skill, um, I need a crutch. And so I will rely totally on visual aids, if, which is somewhat common in our field, but in a crutch in any case. So I'll proceed with the visual aids. Okay, now uh, this has no particular significance other than the fact that I came on this earth about a month after the transfer from President Coolidge to President Hoover. And uh, the only uh, significance I can attach to this is, of course, uh, Herbert Hoover was in the Stanford's very first graduating class, but even more significant from my point of view, he was Stanford's first engineer. And 40-odd uh, years after my birth, taking a very circuitous path, I ended up teaching engineering at Stanford. So that, that, that's the only uh, <laughs> connection. <clears throat> uh, in my early years, I was very involved in ham radio, experimenting, breaking my parents' uh, 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 radio set. and. Uh, this was very difficult. We lived in a, a one-bedroom apartment in the Bronx, and there wasn't much room, so I would be in a corner of the living room with my mother yelling at me. But I did it to some degree in any case, and that was sort of fun. And that led to my you know, interest in general in electronics. And uh, actually, you know, considering our economic circumstances, CCNY, City College in New York, was really the only option I had. And so I started City College, and the first couple of years were very difficult for me. First of all, I, I was on, started out, I was 16 and a half, and this corresponded with the end of World War II, and suddenly 12 million veterans, uh, some of them twice my age, descended onto universities, which was a wonderful thing, the GI Bill. But it was very difficult for me, and at the same time, my grandmother, who had spent World War II in France, came over to live with us. So she slept in the kitchen and uh, in this one-bedroom apartment. And so it was very constrained, very difficult to do any college work. And it was a somewhat low period for me. And I have to say that the uh, saving grace was meeting Addie, who most of you know. Uh, I met Annie in, at the early part of my junior year, and things really turned around. I started to get only A's, and somehow college uh, <laughs> was very good to me at that time. Uh, we, we had an interesting courtship with the zero money, and uh, some of you, you former New Yorkers may remember Lewiston Stadium, where you could sit and listen to a concert on a stone step for 50 cents. So we, she would meet me after school, and we would go there, and that was our standard date. Unfortunately, it's been turned down, and it's Lewis and something else now, I've forgotten. It's still part of the city college scene. <clears throat> uh, 
And then uh, at the end of 1949, I graduated. Now, uh, considering having immigrant parents and the like, my approach to college, I would say, was sort of a trade school approach. You learned a trade, and then you went to work. And the trade I learned was electrical engineering. And so I sought a job in the electrical engineering. And, uh, there was a hiatus between the end of World War II and the beginning of the Korean War where engineering jobs were very difficult to come by. But fortunately, there was this huge post-war industry, probably was the only post-war industry, called television. And so RCA Laboratories was giving competitive exams, and I was lucky enough to be hired at RCA Laboratories at $215 a month, which is... Uh, at that time, it was very exciting. <laughs> and so uh, I was working at RCA, and uh, that was a very interesting experience for me. I met some very, very distinguished scientists and began to realize that there was a lot more to science and engineering than I had experienced as an undergraduate, and began thinking in terms of graduate school and by that time, uh, I had two small children, so I went to the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn in the evening and was able to get my master's degree in about two or three years. Uh, the, uh, the work I did was uh, primarily on, on color television, which was the big thing in the 50s for RCA laboratories. And I, I, I thought they would do doing me a big favor by allowing, by putting one of the experimental color sets in our home. And of course the neighbors would flock in and they'd never seen anything like it, but the important thing is they did all of the color television testing in the, at night. So I would stay up at night and in the morning we would huddle together, all the uh, engineers, and decide what changes had to be made. But what I didn't realize is they were getting us to work day and night by giving me a so-called free set. But it, it, was, it was fun. There was one famous incident where there was a, a, a test object. There was a bowl of artificial fruit. But strangely enough, in this artificial fruit, the banana was blue. And so those of us who were expecting a yellow banana were turning every knob, known, wondering why the banana was coming out blue. It turned out it was blue. <laughs> so people in color television all know the blue banana story. Uh, RCA Laboratories had a tremendous uh, focus on invention and innovation. Uh, the entire laboratory system was supported by patent royalties, so there was no additional money needed on, for the company to support the, the research effort. And so there was this focus, and what happens to a young engineer is you, you start getting ideas, and then you look around you and you see these seasoned veterans, and you. You tell yourself, well, it, it can't be any good, otherwise someone else would have thought of it. And so you, you meekly suggest it, and, and then you find out it is new, and it does work, and you, and you sort of build up a lot of confidence in that way. And that was a, a great experience for me, to, to realize that I could think of things which hadn't been done by other people. And I, I won't go to, you know, there were, I had a number of color TV patents on both the system and circuits and the like. And, uh, my interest in academia and in learning more and more started to be piqued, as I said, by associating with these very distinguished scientists. 
And so in 1957, I, I joined the faculty at Brooklyn College, even though I had not yet, uh, I didn't have a PhD at the time, I just had a master's degree, but I had, had some accomplishments which allowed me to get onto the faculty. I continued to consult one day a week at RCA Laboratories in Princeton. And I taught these standard courses in communications and circuits and transistors. And, and that was a, a good, my first experience at teaching. Uh, but I, I realized that uh, to get anywhere in this field in academia, I would have to have a PhD. And so I we picked up the family and we went to California and I got a position as a senior research engineer at SRI. It was then called Stanford Research Institute, but now they just use the initials. And uh, I did a lot of research continuing on imaging. That was the focus and facsimile systems, displays. And while I was doing this, I was able to get my PhD in a few years using the uh, Stanford uh, Honors Co-op Program, which some of you may be familiar with. That's while you're working in industry, you can take something like one course a quarter and you could either do it by television, because the, the courses are, a lot of the courses are broadcast, or the, at, at SRI was flexible enough, I could come in for the one course. And that, so I, I, uh, 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 I slowly got the PhD while continuing to do a variety of display research at, at SRI. And that's where I had uh, done my very first work in medical ultrasound while, while I was still at SRI. <clears throat> uh, one of the things I worked on at SRI was a, uh, a new kind of color camera. Just to, to look at it briefly, uh, see if I can get the pointer. Yeah, uh, this is just a, a mock-up of a standard color TV camera where you have three camera tubes and you filter, you use the three primary colors, red, green, and blue, so that the incoming image gets broken up into its red, green, and blue components, and these are then processed and form the color TV signal. Now, the problem with this is these three tubes have to be mechanically and electrically registered, and they're usually going out of registration, and it's a somewhat expensive procedure. So, uh, myself and, and colleagues came up with a, uh, if I can get the pointer, a, uh, a one-tube color television camera where a special encoding filter is put in which puts all the color information onto a single tube and again that's processed. Now it doesn't have to be registered, it becomes a very rugged device which not only is for a studio operation but could be used in the home and so it became the, by the way that's what the color encoding filter is, it actually puts the color information on high-frequency carriers. I'll try not to go into anything too technical. But this is a studio camera, and in it are the three tubes with their registration. And then this was, is a one-tube camera, which uh, are used for camcorders and the like, uh, using that same principle. So that was one of the important uh, things I worked on at uh, SRI. <coughs> Uh, in, in the course of my, uh, my PhD at Stanford, I had this wonderful advisor, Professor Joe Goodman, and I, again, I won't go into detail, but the subject of my thesis was television holography. Normally, 
holography has huge bandwidth and it's almost impossible to put onto a television system. And I worked on a system where uh, the, again, the reference beam is shifted in frequency so that the, to separate the interference pattern. Again, I won't go into the detail, but it did allow you to do holography with ordinary television cameras, although uh, holography is yet to be uh, used commercially in that manner, but it was an interesting operation. <clears throat> in, in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, uh, NIH, for a short period of time, had a, a special fellowship, and this was designed for people in mid-career, because I was sort of 40 then, uh, for people in mid-career who had had a career in the physical sciences and wanted to get involved with the medical sciences. So I applied for that and got it, and it was a very good, very good setup. I, I did the work at the UCSF uh, radiology department in San Francisco, which this is a picture of. <coughs> And uh, what I did is I just looked over the shoulders of the radiologists to see what they could see and what they couldn't see and what they had problems with to give me some ideas to where uh, interesting research might be done. And that it was a very fruitful year for me. <clears throat> did a lot of library reading, too, to catch up on that. And uh, following that fellowship, I was fortunate enough to get the joint appointment at Stanford. The appointment was structured two-thirds electrical engineering and one-third radiology. This was the first time there was a joint appointment between the schools of medicine and engineering. And as Professor Siegman has indicated, this was a continuation of the fundamental reason that the medical school moved down to the, to the main campus in 1959 to foster more of these interactions. And from the radiology point of view, initially the, the interaction was primarily in the radiotherapy area, and, and this was the beginning of the interaction in the diagnostic imaging area. My office was in the Information Systems Laboratory in Electrical Engineering, and the initial research was in X-ray imaging and ultrasound. <clears throat> and just to look at the kinds of research, what, one problem in radiology, which is a, sort of a classic problem, is uh, you, you have a number of organs in the body, and they're all superimposed on a film, and so the bone, the soft tissue, the vessels are all superimposed, and it, it takes an extremely clever radiologist, which most of them are, to, to, to separate these. <clears throat> For example, in a, in a lung x-ray, if you have a tumor hiding behind the rib or some other structure, it's, it's difficult to see. And so in our research, we came up with dual energy Im imaging where by acquiring information at two different X-ray energies, a high energy and a low energy, and then processing this with a fairly complicated processing, we're able to make a separate, separate issue, separate image of the soft tissue as you see on the left and the, the bone structure as you see on the right. And this is now widely used. It's now available from uh, all of the major manufacturers. And this work also led to dual energy bone density scans, which all of us in our later years find the need for, uh, because uh, basically in a bone density scan, you're trying to uh, remove the soft tissue 
and finding the density of the bone only. And so the same technique is used, uh, same general technique. <clears throat> Around that time was the beginning of computerized tomography. And, and as some of you probably know, basically what you're doing is making a projection through the body at one angle and then moving the x-ray tube and the pickup device at every angle and going all the way around and then are able to reconstruct a cross-sectional image of one slice. <clears throat> this is the CT scanner that you're all familiar with, uh, that you I'm sure have been in. And uh, hmm. Just one sec. Okay. Uh, these are some typical CT scans of the abdomen, the liver, and the chest. <clears throat> uh, Cross-sectional images of those areas. And uh, and we started a very significant program in ultrasonic imaging. This was a cooperative program. Professor Jim Mindel, who probably many of you know, had a program in the application of integrated circuits. So we had a, a large NIH study where Professor Mindel's group built integrated circuits for ultrasound systems. And my group, I had three doctoral students that studied ultrasonic systems. and, and uh, Rich Pop, Professor Rich Pop was doing the, uh, it was mostly for the heart. He was doing the clinical part of it. And uh, so we studied ultrasound to some degree. Uh, the ultrasound is quite different than x-rays. In order to do ultrasonic imaging, you need a soft tissue or fluid path to the region that you're interested in. Uh, because the uh, ultrasound is basically stopped by air or bone. So if you don't have a soft tissue or fluid pit, and this limits you, you can't do every part of the body. You can do a, a, a classism. Interestingly enough, for cardiac imaging, nature is very kind to us. And there's a so-called cardiac notch, which is an opening in the left lung that, that allows you to look at the heart. Otherwise, uh, you wouldn't be able to see it through the air in the lung. The nice thing about it, uh, ultrasound, is there's no ionizing, one of the nice things, there's no ionizing radiation. So it's become the, the standard imaging device for imaging the fetus. And so here you can see the, uh, point, the uh, opening in the left lung, the cardiac notch, and the, the ultrasound probe is placed in that region in order to image the, uh, the heart. <clears throat> and this is a, a typical cardiac image where you could see the, very, the left ventricle or right ventricle, et cetera, of the heart. And usually it's done dynamically with the, with the watching the heart beat. That's another nice thing about ultrasound. It's rapid enough so you can deal with the motion of the heart. <clears throat> and this is a, an example of fetal imaging. 
the, of, of a baby. Again, the, the, there's no problem in, in the pregnant abdomen because it's all fluid from the skin to the fetus, so you can see, get a, a very good look. And uh, I understand it's become standard for uh, pregnant women to have the first picture of their baby framed of the ultrasound picture. <clears throat> now, just to, to back up a little the history to see where the work that I did fits in uh, for a historical perspective. Uh, uh, William Rankin discovered x-rays in 1895, and interestingly enough, the very first Nobel Prize in Physics in 1901 was given to William Rankin for his work on x-rays. <clears throat> now, this was a completely accidental discovery. He had what we call a Crookes tube, which had electrons bombarding a, bombarding a metal, which is what creates x-rays. And then nine feet away, there happened to be some fluorescent material, and he saw it light up, and he didn't have the faintest idea what was happening. And, and uh, from this, he built the first x-ray system, which you see here. <clears throat> and this is the first x-ray image, which was of his wife's hand. <clears throat> Now, what's interesting is what happened following that invention, uh, or discovery, if you will. The, the first few years resulted in a very wide acceptance throughout the whole world of the x-rays, and there were some improvements in the screens and the sources. That happened in a few years, it was widely distributed, but from there on, the x-ray instruments themselves remained relatively unchanged for 50 to 60 years after that initial flurry. And, but there was a lot of innovation done in x-rays, and they were done by some very distinguished clinicians, many of which we have in this room who participated in all of the innovation done to the x-ray system. And they would uh, add contrast agents in areas that couldn't be visualized, vessels, GI systems. and. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of these procedures were invasive. You had to invade the body with a catheter uh, to some degree invasive. But uh, it was interesting how static the instrumentation was. And then we arrived at what we'd call an imaging revolution. In the 1960s, nuclear medicine and ultrasound were introduced to the uh, radiology community. And in the 70s, computerized tomography. In the 1980s, magnetic resonance imaging and PET imaging. And in 2000, some new improvements in non-invasive imaging, such as molecular imaging, which I won't go into. <clears throat> now, this is where I was very fortunate with my timing. It was pure luck. I did television research when it was the primary post-war industry. If somebody wanted to do television research now, they'd have to leave the United States. None of it was done here any longer, but it was at RCA Laboratories, that was their prime interest. I also was able to get an NIH special fellowship during the very brief time it was offered. It wasn't offered before or since. And I was able to begin medical imaging when it began its renaissance with all the new instrumentation and ultrasound. So I, I was very fortunate in, in my timing and lucky. <clears throat> In, in, uh, after about, about 10 years at Stanford, uh, I took a sabbatical in London at, at the 
medical physics group at Hammersmith Hospital, one of the more distinguished hospitals in London. And again, I was quite fortunate there. As, as some of you may know, the first computerized tomography instrument was built by EMI, which stands for Electrical and Musical Instruments, an English company who's most famous for owning the Beatles. And, and uh, at that time, a gentleman by, by the name of Sir Godfrey Hounsfield, obviously he's, he was knighted, received the Nobel Prize for his early work in computerized tomography. Now, Godfrey was an experimentalist, he, not a theoretician, a really hands-on guy. And what had happened is at the time I started my sabbatical, EMI had decided to drop out of medical imaging. They could not make a success of any subsequent pr products. They tried MRI, they tried uh, uh, computerized tomography systems which image the body. The original one was just for the brain. And they were unsuccessful. They dropped out much to Godfrey's unhappiness. And so they donated their early small experimental MRI machine to the medical physics group at Hammersmith Hospital in London. And he loved it so dearly, he went there one day a week. So I was able to work with him one day a week during the very early days of MRI, and it was a great education for me. Again, I said it was hands-on. Two of us would be playing with wires and clip leads, and, and it, was, it was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, he's since passed away, but quite a remarkable man. Again, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, while I was uh, at Hammersmith Hospital, with, with my wife's prodding, I wrote a letter to General Electric. We had been supported by General Electric in the X-ray world at that time for about 10 years. I, I wrote a letter to them telling my interest in MRI, and they agreed to supply us with a complete uh, system at, at no cost. Uh, so again, GE offered us an MRI magnet. Uh, so now what Stanford has to do is find a place to put it. And that was a very interesting exercise. It was frustrating at the time, but now all the X's you see are the places where we wanted to put the MRI laboratory. And everybody was afraid of the strong magnetic field and was going to destroy everything in its site. That little <laughs> round circle you see, I don't know if I can point to it, is where we ended up in the, what was then called the press courtyard. <clears throat> That's where we are now. <clears throat> uh, just to show you some of the difficulty we went into, what one of the places suggested was in the physics area. And we were going to get a, a magnet which was 15,000 gauss. As you know, the Earth's field is a half a gauss. So this is 30,000 times bigger than the Earth's field. There was a gentleman at Silla's Blas Cabrera in the physics department who was trying to find magnetic monopoles. No one has ever found a magnetic monopole. They usually are in dipoles, both north and south, and he was trying to get a monopole. And he was looking for one millionth of a gauss, and we had 15,000 gauss. He screamed when we said we were going to put our magnet in the physics area, so that, that became thrown out. But finally, I don't know if Bob Eustace is here today, he was our savior. He uh, probably spelled savior wrong. He, he uh, had a, a slab which was going to be built on, but they changed their mind, and he offered it to us 
very generously. He's in, of course, mechanical engineering. And this was the slab. What it was used for at the time was studying solar panels uh, for uh, solar energy. However, we being very uh, ecology-minded, didn't want to remove the solar panels, so we ended up building our laboratory and putting all of those on the roof where they still are so that the solar project continues. We didn't disrupt it, I promise. <clears throat> and this is the laboratory, our MS MRSRL laboratory. Uh, this is the, when GE delivered their magnet, we had, we had to put it in through the roof. This is putting it in through the roof. And that was in 85, and as all, you all know, in 89, the earth shook. And uh, our uh, MRI system couldn't take it. There was this uh, announcement in the, in the newspaper that only one MRI magnet in the Bay Area was reported to have quenched, and that was ours. The good news was we ended up with a new and better magnet after that. In fact, people accused us of causing the earthquake when we got a <laughs> new and better magnet. So this is what our MRI machine looks like today. It's not the nice, clean one that you see in hospitals, but it serves the same function, and a volunteer can get up on it and on, onto our table and use it for making images. Oh boy. Anyway, uh, this is the group from a few years back working on it where you can see Addy and myself outlined a large group, and it keeps growing actually with a lot of doctoral students, a lot of postdocs. It's very attractive to uh, electrical engineering students. And just to see where they are now, one of the unusual statistics is that eight people from our group are on, now on the Sandman faculty, which is rare for one group uh, in both electrical engineering and in the medical school. And uh, of course, a lot of them are at universities throughout the world, UC Berkeley even in uh, Oxford and Catholic University in Chile. And of course, they're also in industry and Sun Microsystems and Hewlett Packard. And I also might indicate that approximately a third of our doctoral students have gone on to the MD, which, which has been quite worthwhile. And uh, one student started with an MD and then got his PhD. That was quite rare, but about a third of them after the PhD go on for the MD, which we certainly encourage. Our, our current, M right now, almost all of our work is magnetic resonance imaging. And our current work is imaging coronary arteries, doing uh, real-time studies, being able to watch motion, functional MRI, brain activity, and then we have a program on reducing the cost and imaging in the presence of uh, metal implants, which are. Uh, we have been working on the coronary arteries for over 30 years with an NIH grant, the same NIH grant which we do every five years. Originally, it was all x-ray studies, and now in recent years, it's been all MRI, but it's been an ongoing grant that we fortunately get renewed. Uh, this is uh, standard coronary artery imaging where a catheter is snaked up starting in the groin and into selectively into each 
uh, coronary artery, and then you put on a contrast material, iodine, and it, which is radio-opaque, and you're able to image these uh, vessels. Cardiac MRI, uh, you can see the arrows pointing to a, 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 a vessel, a coronary vessel. Uh, this is uh, some more work in coronary angiography showing the various vessels with uh, all with MRI, all done non-invasively without any contrast agent. Now, I don't know if this is going to work. This is some of our dynamic studies with cardiac MRI. Oh, yeah. This is where we image rapidly enough so we can uh, see the beating heart. This is uh, a heart with valve problems, which you can see, at least the, uh, the professionals tell us they can see it. We have a group that's working on uh, functional MRI, which is able to see which part of the brain is, is responsible for, for various functions. This is just a simple finger movement where you take a, an original baseline image, then uh, you do the simulation. And it, it could be l looking at something with, with your visual system or moving a finger. And, you, and uh, what happens, you get a change in the, oxy, the oxyhemoglobin going to the part of the brain controlling that, and then you recover, and then you subtract these two images, and then you see uh, which part of the brain controlled that finger movement. And this has been uh, amplified many, many ways, uh, looking at various functions of the brain. <clears throat> uh, one big problem, which is unique to our group, which we have addressed, is MRI in the presence of metal. Normally, metal is highly distorting because of its change in the magnetic field. And we have a system, which I won't go into unless I get a question on it. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is a, a, a knee appliance, and as you can see, it completely wipes out this region of, of image, and you can't see the cartilage which you'd like to see. And then with our new system, which is somewhat noisy, but that's an area we're working on, you, you can see the, the uh, cartilage quite well. <clears throat> uh, this is the, the same system. Uh, this is all done with student volunteers. We found a student who had various, she, a woman who had various kinds of metal in her wrist. This is a conventional MRI of a wrist, and this is what we call pre-polarized MRI, PMRI. As you can see, the, the distortion disappears. So this is something we're very enthusiastic about. Again, it's unique to our group. <clears throat> and uh, this is what the, uh, the machine that made those images, a homemade MRI. As you can see, the bore is quite small. That's why you're limited to the wrist and the knee. Uh, it takes a very agile student to get his knee and the wrists are okay, but I'm amazed with it. So we find an agile student with a knee implant and able to get their knee in. We have plans to build a full-size one uh, to, to continue with, with this work, and uh, that's going to be uh, one of our major interests uh, in the future. Thank you.
Well, this has been a, uh, a very efficient talk uh, uh, coming in on schedule. And I'm, I'm sure many of you have questions. And so we, there is a microphone uh, in the middle aisle here. And if you'd, if you'd use it, or maybe we can pass it over to you. Okay, it's not a question, just to report an unknown fact about Al. And that is, he is a registered patent agent. Because he fell on hard times, he could set up shop and start preparing patent applications. Now, I learned this when I first started working with him in the mid-1980s, and, and I was assigned to his area to look after, and he brought me a, an invention disclosure, and to my total astonishment, it included a draft patent application. And that was part of the Thank you. I could just identify that that uh, question or that message came from John Sandlin, who's a, a staff emeritus among the group here. Uh, could we pass the microphone over, or can you come over? Thank you. It was such a wonderful, interesting educational talk. Thank you. I, as a, I just had a question. Could you kind kindly tell me about how much radiation you get by comparing to flying an airplane or something when you get an MRI? Uh, MRI, you use radio frequencies, not X-ray. So basically, there's no radiation. Putting it another way, uh, it's non-ionizing radiation. Uh, X-ray photons, X-ray particles are capable of disrupting an atom, like knocking loose an electron. Whereas uh, the lower energy of the radio frequencies used in MRI can't do that. So it's non-ionizing radiation. It can't create an ion. So you basically can say there's no radiation. Oh, that's what I heard. I heard yeah. that an MRI is so much better than getting a CT scan. Yeah, from the point of view of radiation, CT yeah. scans certainly have significant value. So even for little children, supposing some little child fell down and hit her head, or something fell on her head, uh, would that be a wise thing? Like if the child was only eight or nine, to have an MRI or get active? Yeah, well, M MRI is, is, is uh, one of the dominant uh, modalities used in, in the brain, you know, whether it's a child or an adult. So it wouldn't harm the child's brain. No, no, certainly right. not, yeah. Do we have other, other questions? Oh. Yes, back over here. The question, uh, Al, is what are you doing now? Are you retired or semi-retired? Or Well, I still have an office. I go to our group meetings and am involved with this project, the, uh, the uh, pre-polarized MRI, which, again, has a lot of advantages uh, over existing MRI. Well, thank you all. Well, thank you all very much. And thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.